Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you have a pulse, it won't take long for you to realize something. That is that life falls apart. Isn't that true? It doesn't take long for life to go completely sideways. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. Uh, it doesn't matter how well insulated you are from the troubles in this world. They will hit you and they will hurt you. It happens to everybody. And it even happens to Christians. Sometimes I think it happens especially to Christians. And in those times when life is falling apart, we often go back to God's promises, the things we know are true in His Word. We read those promises, and sometimes they just don't seem like they ring true anymore. Isn't that right? Promises like this, where God says, "I, I will never leave you or forsake you. But sometimes when life is totally falling apart, don't you feel alone? Or when God says he will always protect us, and yet sometimes we say, God, I feel like I'm just getting killed right now. Or God says that essentially that everything will work together for our good and and for his glory, and you look at your life and all the problems and the mess that everything has become, and you say, how can you possibly get any glory out of this? And how could there be any good for me in what is hitting me right now? And sometimes those times are really long, those hard times. Sometimes those times are really deep, and your heart aches, and you face times of depression as everything falls apart. And what happens is you start to doubt. Anybody been there? You start to doubt God's words. You start to doubt Brad's promises because they just don't seem to ring true anymore when you match them up with your circumstances. Now, if you haven't been there, like I said, it's only a matter of time until you will be there. It happens to everyone in life. You face seasons of incredible doubts. How do you get through them? That's what we're going to discover this morning. How do you go through those dark times of doubt, despair, and depression? As a church, we have been working our way through the book of Genesis, and for the last few weeks, we have been looking at one particular character in the book as we're working our way forward. The man's name is Abram. He's called the father of faith, and it's neat to look at him because we can sort of learn about his journey of faith because there's many things about his uh, journey of faith and learning to trust in God that parallels ours because we're also journeying in faith and learning to trust in God. The last week was a really exciting week for Abram. He, his knucklehead nephew, who was living in Sodom, ended up getting taken away by an incredibly powerful confederacy of four kings. We saw these were the kings essentially of modern-day Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey. Isis, instead of Isis, <laughs> took over the entire Transjordanian Valley and just wreaked destruction on it. God had worked through Abraham to deliver a mighty deliverance because him with his 318 trained soldiers and his Yahoo neighbors went and routed these guys by night. 
And what happened is Abram went from sort of a not much of a known guy to an incredible local hero. Fame, popularity, success, because he liberated all of the people who were taken captive. But as what often happens, on the backside of incredible success is fear, depression, and darkness. Isn't that true? You go from incredible highs sometimes to unexpectedly face incredible lows. And this is what I think is going on here with Abram. It doesn't say it directly in the text, but as we work our way through, you'll see it implied. He's sort of got uh, exhaustion, fear, depression, maybe post-traumatic stress disorder after the battle, if you want to call it that. And I think he's even having trouble sleeping. Because while he's famous in the Transjordanian Valley, you know that every single post office in Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey has a most wanted poster, most wanted dead or alive, and Abram's name is on the top of the list because he has routed their kings in the last chapter. We're going to come back and we're going to get him. Now, here's the question as we get into our study of the text. What do we need to remember when I am fearful of the future? Because Abram is fearful of the future. What's going to happen? I was incredibly successful then, but will I be successful now? What happens if these guys come back? Let's go ahead and read the text, and we'll see how this goes. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. The first thing he says is after these things, and we know what these after these things are referring to. It's after he routed these four incredible kings. And the first thing that God says to him is, fear not. Now, I don't know exactly why God says it that way. It could be because God's talking to you, and whenever God's talking to you, it seems like if you study the Scriptures, that's often His first words, fear not, because guess what? God's pretty awesome. We're not. And whenever He talks to us, we are filled with fear. That may be the scenario. It also may be that Abram is just filled with fear of the future, because he's afraid of like, what is, how are things going to unfold after this. In fact, I tend to think it's that way because he says, fear not, because I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. I am going to be the one who is going to protect you. And if you want to you're filling in the blanks, here's the first one under that point. God is my shield. He says, Abram, take a chill pill. You can relax. Just as the victory that we had in the last chapter was from me, your protection going forward is also by me. I haven't forgotten you. It wasn't just a one-time occurrence. I'm looking out for you and protecting you. And as I started to look at this, I found something interesting. That throughout the Psalms, we find God consistently called our protection and our shield. Look at what it says in Psalm 3.3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory, and you're the lifter of my head. And I put down a couple extra psalms for you in there if you want to look that up in your life group tonight. And I just wanted to mention to you that we are descendants of Abraham, 
We are like ultimately child of Abraham because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And you need to know something, that God also promises to be our shield. God promises to be our protection. Now, does that mean that we will never face hard times in life? Absolutely not. But what it means is this, that anything that comes into your life is filtered by God. Nothing can happen to us that God does not allow. He is our shield. He is our protection. An example of this would be Job. Remember Job in the Old Testament and all the nasty stuff that happened to him where he lost all of his stuff and lost all of his kids and the the world fell apart? Could anything happen to him that didn't first pass through God's hands? Absolutely not. In fact, Satan had to get permission from God to be able to ever touch Job because God protects his children. So the first thing I have to tell you is some of you I know are stressed about life. You don't sleep well at night because you've got a lot of stress going on. Take a chill pill. Know that God is your shield. God is your protector. Leave your worries in God's hands. Does it say, cast your anxieties on Jesus Christ because he cares for you and move forward. It's going to be okay. The second thing he makes a promise to him of is this. He says, you know, God is, or he says, um, your reward shall be very great. And God is my reward. Remember what happened in the last chapter. Abram had just conquered these four kings. He had the booty of all these four kings. It's sort of like he won that Powerball ticket that everybody was trying to win this past week. What was it, like $384 million he had? And the idea is that Abram says, I'm not going to take any of it. King of Sodom, I don't want you to ever be able to say that the reason I'm rich is because of your stuff. I'm giving it all back. Now, in some ways, people thought Abram was a nutcase. They thought Abram might have been off his medication. (laughs) Who gives back the winning Powerball ticket for $384 million? It's essentially what he did. But here it says, or God says to him, you don't need to worry about that, Abram, because your reward will be great. I will take care of honoring you and giving you the reward. You don't need to take it from the king of Sodom. Now, this sets up what is really to be our main point this morning. God has just made two promises to Abram. Number one, I'm going to be your shield. Number two, your reward is going to be great. But Abram is struggling. He's on that backside of success. He's struggling with fear and depression. And essentially what he's saying is, you've made some promises to me before, God. And they don't seem like they ring true. They don't seem like they're actually happening. And he's starting to doubt God's word is true. The promises that God has made before is you will have a son and that you will have a promised land. And here's the problem. We're more than a decade into this faith journey. and Abram still doesn't have a son. We're more than a decade into this faith journey, and he's still a nomad in the promised land. Is, is he a very powerful nomad? Uh, has he 
just routed these four kings that, took, that attacked the Transjordanian Valley? Yes, but he's still a nomad. He doesn't have any land to call his own. God, did you forget about your promises before? I mean, you can make promises to me now, but I'm sort of waiting for you to come through on what you said. So Abraham is, Abraham is struggling with doubt. Now let's go ahead, and what we're going to do for the balance of this text, it answers these two questions. Abraham, let me tell you about how things are going to unfold with the sun. Let me tell you how things are going to unfold with, your, with land. And we're going to see that God does keep his word, even though... It looks like the odds are incredibly stacked against him. Why did Abraham struggle with doubt? Number one, he didn't understand how God would give him a son. But Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Like, how much reward really matters? I don't care how much money you give me if I don't have a kid. And the heir of my house is like Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. What about the other promise? Because God had promised Abram a son, and he had promised him land back in Genesis 12, verse 2, back in Genesis 12, verse 7, back in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 16. Three times God had said this, but now he's 85 years old. His wife is still struggling with infertility. And most 85-year-old people do not all of a sudden spontaneously start having children. And it seems like at this point, all hope is gone. All hope is lost, and God has forgotten about this promise. Because it's gone on way too long. And many of us are in the exact same situation in some things in life. Hard times in our life has gone, have gone on a long time. Some of us have gone through times of long-term difficulty, and you doubt, and you say, God, have you forgotten about me? This is Abram. Now, before I get too deeply into uh, unpacking the next part of the text, I want to give you a little topical point to look at things, and that is there is a difference between biblical doubt and unbelief. There is a difference between biblical doubt and unbelief. Let me show you what this is. Doubt. Doubt is you trust in God's word is true, but you really have no idea how God could accomplish it. You trust it's true, but it, it, it seems unreasonable for him. This is where Abram was. I, I believe you, God, but I have questions. It seems like this has gone on too long. And this is not something we just see in Abram. We see it in other biblical characters. Like, you remember one of Jesus' disciples named Thomas? What was Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas. Because the other disciples have seen Jesus risen from the dead, and they say to Thomas, Jesus rose from the dead, and Thomas is like, well, I just can't believe it. Unless I put my finger in his hands and in his side and I touch him, then I can believe it. And He's struggling with doubt. And what happens? Jesus comes along and says, Thomas, touch my side, touch my hands. That's biblical doubt. Now, look at Mary. She's another one. Mary is told by the angel that you will have the Christ child. And she sits there, and she doesn't sit there and totally disdoubt it, but she says, you know, um, 
here's the problem. Like, how am I going to get pregnant? Because pregnant gir- or virgin girls don't get pregnant. She just has questions about this. So what we see is biblical doubt is like normal. It's people who they want to have faith, but they're seeking answers. God, help me believe, because it seems too impossible to believe. The other side is unbelief. Here is unbelief. Unbelief is things that have gone on long, they've gone on a difficult time, and what you do is you say, I have no idea how God can keep His word. I think God is a liar. God has forgotten about me, so I walk away. Unbelief is not the way to respond. Biblical doubt is acceptable. Biblical doubt is going to God with your questions, saying, help me believe. Some of you are in tough circumstances this morning. Some of you are, you're single, and you're wondering if God will ever send you Mr. or Miss Wright to get married. Say, God, why don't you come to the rescue? Your choices are you can go to unbelief and say, God doesn't care about me and walk away. Or you can respond with biblical doubt and say, God, help me because I'm struggling. Some of you have been struggling with job issues. God, I've been praying to you to help us make the ends meet financially for a long time, but it seems like you just don't make it work out. You could go to unbelief and walk away, or you could go to biblical doubt with his faith, seeking answers by pressing into God. Biblical doubt is okay. Let's continue to read how this unfolds. It says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said said to him, So shall your offspring be. In the Hebrew, this is an emphatic no. Eliezer is not going to be (laughs) your heir. You will have an offspring from your own body. And then God gives a visual aid, which, by the way, I like visual aids. He says, look up at the stars. You're going to have more descendants than you can see in the stars of the heavens. You have more descendants beyond your dreams. Abram has doubts. God has responded by re-promising to him that he will have a son from his own body. The question is, how will Abram respond? Will he go into unbelief or will he go into trust? Now, what we find in this next verse is that Abraham chooses to trust God. Now, this next verse is incredibly important. It is... Some people consider this one little verse to be the most important verse in Genesis. Some people say it's the most important verse in the Old Testament. It is a verse that is quoted frequently in the New Testament, and we're going to look at it a little bit, and it's alluded to a number of times in the, in the New Testament. This is what it says about Abraham. And he believed the Lord... And he counted it to him as righteousness. The answer is here. Respond to my doubts with faith in God. Respond to my doubts with faith in God. Abram says, I don't have any idea how this is going to work out. I don't know how you could possibly give uh, Sarah and I a child, a son, at this ripe old age. But I am choosing to trust you. 
And what we find is Abram is declared to be in a right relationship with God because he's willing to trust God's words even if it doesn't make sense, even if he doesn't have the answers for how it's going to come together. God, I'm going to trust your word as true. And that is what brings him into a right relationship with God. And as I laid in bed last night, and I was just reviewing my sermon a little bit as I fell asleep, I said to myself, I need to stop. I need to tell you that if you have zoned off for anything in the message this morning, don't zone off for this part. This is the most important thing you can hear this morning. This is so incredibly important. The only way that anybody has a right relationship with God is by trusting in God's promises by faith. Just as Abraham chose to trust in God's promises and take them as rock-solid true, even though he took them by faith and didn't have any idea how they came together. That's what salvation is. Look how Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Speaking about Abraham, he says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why, quote, it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. How do you get into a right relationship with God? How do you have your sins forgiven? In the big picture, Paul is saying it is not by obeying the Old Testament law. Incidentally, the Old Testament law doesn't come for another 430 years. Abram's in a right relationship with God before that we even put on the, on the scene. It's not by being a Jew and being part of that ethnic group because circumcision doesn't come on the scene for another 14 years. It was because Abram trusted God's promise that he would have a son. Against all odds, God's word is true. What happened is Abram is looking forward in faith, ultimately not just to his son, but to the coming of his greater son, Jesus Christ. See, Abram was looked saved by looking forward in faith to Jesus. We are saved by looking backward in faith to Jesus. The only way that anybody is brought into a right relationship with God is by trusting God's words as true. And that God has said, the only way that your sins can be forgiven is by faith in my son, Jesus. We trust in God's words as true. Look at what uh, it says in Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Just as Abram, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's faith again. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram. And the, the, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. In other words, Abram's faith was not just for the Jewish people. 
It was to be a guide, an example for us, for all people. Abram's faith pointed to the way that all the world would be blessed by trusting in God's promises. We are saved by faith. James chapter 2, same thing. James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, says, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, quote, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And then he says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What James is saying is a person is justified before God by faith, by trusting in what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. But when we trust in what God has done through Jesus, it doesn't mean there are no works, but that our works grow out of our faith. Our works do not replace our faith. In other words, when you come to God through Jesus Christ, He gives you a different heart, doesn't He? Beforehand, you were seeing how far you could get away with sin without getting in trouble. But when you've come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we have been born again. And now our heart is not to see how much we can do to get away with before getting whacked, but is how much can I please you, Jesus? Because I want to honor you. I want to please you. My heart is changed. In our works, a changed life grows out of the changed heart that God has given us. And that changed heart, we were saved all by faith. So, the big picture at this point. What happens? Number one, Abram says, God, I know you've made some promises to be my shield and be my reward. Abram says, well, what about these other promises that I feel like you haven't kept? What about my son? God says, I promise you, you will have a son from your own body, and you're going to have more descendants than the stars of the heavens. And how does Abraham choose to respond to that promise from God? He believes it is true by faith. And that is how he's brought into a right relationship with God, just like we're brought into a right relationship with God, by taking God's word by faith. But the other part of the question was the land. God, how are you going to give me this land? When are you going to give me this promised land? Let's follow the text. He didn't understand how God would give him land. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I shall possess it? There's the doubt. But he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now the question immediately goes in your head. Why does God all of a sudden turn Abram into a butcher? Like, what is this all about? Cutting in half all these animals? Like, that seems like it's coming out of no place. Here's what you need to understand. Today, when we do some legal paperwork, and we sign it with our name, and to make it really official, we go to a public notary, right? 
The notary puts a stamp and a seal on it, and that becomes a legal binding contract. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have public notaries, but they had a way of doing a legal blood binding contract. It was called a blood oath. And what they did is they took animals and they cut them in half. And what they did is they brought the community together. So the community were to be the witnesses of this blood oath contract. And the people who were entering into that contract walked back and forth between those dismembered animals and essentially said, if I break this contract, may I become just like these animals, dismembered and butchered. It was a one-way, irrevocable blood oath promise. That is what is happening here. God has told Abram to set up this irrevocable blood oath contract promise. But he doesn't enter into it yet. All of a sudden, before we enter into it, there is this little segue where God explains to Abram how the land will eventually come to his children. And it's not what he expected. Abram expected it would all happen in his lifetime. And for us, if we were there, we'd expect it in 30 minutes because we're a microwave generation. <coughs> Look how God talks about this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you probably know what God is referring to. When we come to the end of the book of Genesis, we find that Abram's descendants ultimately go to Egypt. And they're in Egypt... Uh, for over 400 years. And it starts out well with Joseph, but things go bad after a while, and they're oppressed, and they're afflicted, and ultimately they're, they're slaves. And finally what happens is God frees them through the plagues, and as they leave, we know what's often called the plundering of the Egyptians, because the Egyptians were so favorably disposed to them, they just gave them stuff, like, take our stuff and get out of here. And a lot of that riches becomes what is used to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. But I want you to understand that what is happening is God is sovereign over history. God is prophetically telling Abram how history will unfold and how his descendants will ultimately come back to the promised land. And he's so detailed here. He says they're going to come back in the fourth generation. I trace this out in the Bible, and it's literally the fourth generation when they come back because Jacob has a son named Levi, and they go into Egypt. Levi has a son named Kohath, next generation. Kohath has a son named Amran, third generation. Amran has a son named Moses, 
Who leads them out of Egypt? Moses, the fourth generation. You see how God has everything in charge? He says, by the way, and as for you, um, Abram, you're going to be like one of those old men in a nursing home. It's going to be fine for you. You're going to have a remote control in one hand and a Dixie cup of ice cream in the other. Everything's going to be good for you. But here's what we see. God is in complete and sovereign control of history. The reason that God can guarantee that Abram's descendants will have the promised land is because he is in control of the future. So he can guarantee the future. The next sub-point we see is this. But sometimes God's plans involve long delays. Isn't that true? Your descendants will get the promised land. But by the way, they're not going to be here the whole time. There's going to be a 430-year detour during which you are going to go to the, uh, Egypt. And it's not unexpected. It's not unplanned. This is exactly the way I have planned for this to happen. And you're eventually in the fourth generation. You're going to come back here and get the land. God is in complete control of history, which is why when He makes His promises, He can guarantee His promises. And the other thing we see is His promises don't just happen in like 10 minutes or a month. He keeps His promises over entire lifetimes and over multiple generations. Because He's God, He can do that. The other thing we see here, and this is an opener for an eye-opener for many of us, sometimes God's plans involve suffering. Did you realize that? Involves sufferings. Abram's descendants were going to go to Egypt, and they would be mistreated in Egypt, and God is declaring that would happen, and He's all under control of it. Now, some of you think that whenever you go through times of suffering, you think you must be out of God's will. Because God would never will for us to suffer. But that is not true. Jesus died on the cross. He suffered more than anyone. Was that part of God's will and God's plan? In the book of 1 Peter that we studied a while back, one of the consistent themes is we go through suffering first and glory second that we will go through times of suffering. It's part of God's will. Now you say, why? Why in the world would God allow times of suffering? Did you know this? If you never suffered, and if I never suffered, we would be just egotistical snots. Isn't that true? We would. Suffering builds humility. Suffering teaches us to depend on God rather than just rely on ourselves. Suffering is what softens our character and creates us into gentle and kind people. If we don't suffer, we'll be egotistical snots. Not only that, that when we go through times of suffering, do you realize It gives God a wonderful opportunity to write an incredible rescue story through your life. And if you've been through those rescue stories, 
It means that forever until you die, you will always be proclaiming God's amazing grace, kindness, and goodness to you. Israel was suffering in Egypt. They're going through terrible times. But God had an incredible rescue story. Plague after plague. Each one of those plagues was directly addressed to one of the gods they worshipped in Egypt. Just stuffing each one of them, one after the other. Crossing of the Red Sea. The entire army of Pharaoh being swallowed alive. Story after story of God's amazing rescue in their life that have come down to us today that we live by. You see how God used suffering in a good way? And if you have ever been through those times of suffering, like I have, and I know many of you have, you've come to the absolute end of yourself, and unless God comes to the rescue, there's no hope in your life. And when God does come to that rescue, your faith is built, and your confidence in His love is strengthened, and you will forever sing His praise. You see how God uses suffering for good? Not fun. I don't like it. You don't like it, but God's got a good purpose. The next thing we see in here, you know, sometimes God's plan involves patience before judgment. Patience before judgment. It's a very interesting little line here. He says, the iniquity of the Amorites yet is not complete. And you're like, well, what's going on there? Who are the Amorites? The Amorites are one of the native Canaanite peoples in the promised land. Now, the Amorites, is eventually when they get conquered, they were very sinful and an incredibly wicked people. But at the time, their iniquity, their sin, was not as you know, incredibly bad. It was sort of beginning to build like a wave. It was getting worse and getting worse. And here's what was going on. God maybe should have judged them, but He didn't judge them. God was being incredibly patient and giving them opportunities to repent. Like hundreds of years of opportunity for them to repent. What were the um, Amorites like by the time that uh, God's people went in to conquer them? Let me tell you a little bit about them. The, there are three primary goddesses that they worshipped. They are um, Astarte, Anat, and Ashram. They are all goddesses of sex and war. In fact, in Leviticus 18, which describes a whole bunch of sexual deviations that God's people were not to be involved in, this says, these are the kind of things that your neighbors do. Like the people in the promised land, don't be involved in it at all. It describes 12 different varieties of incest. Now, incest is bad enough, but when you have 12 different varieties, like flavors of it, you know these guys are off the deep end. They were involved in bestiality. They were involved in adultery. They were involved in child sacrifice. So when God raises up his people in the land of Egypt and he frees them and he brings them out and under Joshua, they are to conquer the promised land. You know, people are saying, how could God be so mean and have them kill all these people in the land of Canaan? The reality is not how could God be so mean, but why was God so patient for hundreds of years in the first place? They were to be God's hand of judgment upon them, to wipe them out. So the point is, God is often very patient with sin, very patient, giving lots and lots of opportunities to repent. But there is a time where that patience comes to an end. True? 
true? Yeah. Remember Noah? What was it like in the days of Noah? People were extremely sinful, extremely wicked, and Noah is called by God to build the ark. But remember, Noah was bivocational. For 120 years, he did two things. He swung a hammer to build the ark, but it says he also preached about righteousness and called people to repentance. And what happened at the end of 120 years of preaching? You know how many converts he had? Nobody. So God says, okay, that's the end. We're closing the door and sending the rain. But God was incredibly patient, incredibly kind, giving many, many, many opportunities to repent. And that's the same thing we have here. He was giving to the Amorites many opportunities to repent. The text finalizes this way. God guarantees to keep His word. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, consistently in the Bible, God's presence is associated with fire. Remember Moses and the burning bush? The bush was on what? Fire, as God spoke to him. Remember Mount Sinai when the giving of the Ten Commandments took place? The top of the mountain was on fire. And what happens here is God's presence shows up in the smoking fire pot, and it goes between the two pieces. And here is what is so different between this covenant and the other covenants in the Old Testament. When those kind of covenants were used, it was always both parties walking back and forth between the dismembered animals, agreeing together. Here it is how many parties? One. God makes a one-way, solemn, blood oath promise to Abram. I will keep my word. No matter what oppositions come your way, no matter how long it seems to take, multiple generations, no matter what suffering comes into your life, like what happened in Egypt. I keep my word. I am sovereign over history. Nothing will frustrate my plans. No matter how hopeless the situation looks, no matter how dark the future seems, when you are struggling with doubt, you need to know God will keep His word. He put Himself on a blood oath promise that His words are good. How are we saved? The only way we come into a relationship with God? By trusting those words. By trusting those promises that God has made to us are true. In particular, those promises that He's made to us about His Son, Jesus Christ. I guarantee you they're true. And that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And it's only by faith, not by works. 
This morning, God is calling us to respond. Some of you are Christians who have uh, struggled with doubt. You've gone through times that are long and hard and tough, and you say, God, will you ever produce a rescue? I've called out to you. I've cried out to you. It seems like you're not there. You know what God's words are to you this morning? To trust him. His plans often take longer time than we realized. Like for Abram, it would be multiple generations to get the land. And when, when we hit times of suffering, we think God has forgotten us. God says, no, I haven't forgotten you. Suffering is often part of my plan too. Trust his word. Be encouraged today. God is much larger and his plans are much bigger than we ever would think. Now, for some of you, some of you may not necessarily know Christ. Some of you maybe have walked away from Christ this morning. And what you're struggling with is not biblical doubt. You're struggling with unbelief. Because it's gone on a long time and a hard time, and you wonder if God really cares at all. And you've started to walk away. And to you, I would say this. This is the way you respond. You need to know that God is incredibly good. God is incredibly kind. He is incredibly loving towards you. He sent His own Son to die for you. My friends, you can trust Him to keep His word. Respond by faith today. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. That is the only way to be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to admit that at times when life is hard and life is dark and we don't see hope in circumstances, we struggle with doubt. Start on, we struggle with doubt on your plans, your will, and your way. We're just like Abram. And right now, we want to just confess that doubt to you. But we don't want to just confess the doubt to you. We want to go back to you. We want to press into you. We want to say, Lord Jesus, we have faith, but we're needing help. And today, Lord, thank you for giving us some of that help. That help is to know that you are large and in charge of all things, sovereign over all of history. Your plans are bigger than we could ever dream. And that we can trust your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.